0: One of my favorite things that I love to do is I love going to the movie theater. Anybody else enjoy the movie theater? And uh, I just love going. Now, I don't go to the movie theater very often because, quite frankly, I'm cheap. Okay. I would rather wait till it comes out on Redbox and then you can rent the movie on Redbox for $1.25 and you can sit in your, in your, in your tank top and, and kick your feet up and, and, and watch the movie. Uh, because for my family, we've got five kids and if we go to the movie theater, we've got to take out a second mortgage to be able to get the tickets and the snacks and everything else going on. And so, uh, you know, Regardless, even though I'm cheap, I still love going to the movie theater. And uh, just one of my favorite things to do. And when I go to the movie theater, one of the things that I, is and it's important to me is I've got to be there on time. Because I want to see the movie trailers. Anybody else anybody else like watching the movie trailers? Any of you show up after the movie trailers because you're like, this isn't even why, yeah. You're like, I don't want to watch all this stuff. I like the movie trailers. Let me tell you, a movie trailer, what they do is they take the very best parts of a movie and, and they put it all together and they put some really cool music to it, and it sells you on the idea that this movie's gonna be awesome. And they they, they they took all the best parts and make it look completely awesome. And and what happens is when they do a movie trailer really well, they can take a really bad movie and make it look pretty awesome. I mean, anybody ever been tricked into going to watching a bad movie because the trailer was that good? Uh, I'm thinking about like 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 the first Hulk that came out in like 2003. That was a horrible movie. I mean, that was a whole—but but the trailer made it look so much better. That's just, you know— and then, and then you, watch the, you watch the trailer and it shows you everything and you're sitting there like, yeah, I'm so excited. And then the last, the last screen comes on and it says coming out spring of 2050. And you're like, really? I've got to wait that long to go see this movie? Uh, maybe it's not that long, but you've got to wait like a year by the time you see that trailer. And you're like, man, and it just gets you excited. Today. We're going to, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Mark, if you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. I've got an usher in the back, and he'd love to uh, come and bring a Bible to you. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at something called the transfiguration uh, of Jesus. And really what this is going to be is it's kind of like a movie trailer. It's kind of like a movie trailer of Jesus. In the transfiguration, we're going to see this little blip, this highlight reel of, of Jesus and then we're going to be able to see how this fits into the rest of the context and the rest of his life. And so, Mike, we've got one over here. Uh, thanks, man. And uh, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. And uh, you can read um, in your Bible. We also will have it on the screen up here and uh, ask you to, uh, to um, listen as I read. So Hartston says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not, and they asked him and said, why do the scribes say, first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how, is it, how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And that is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we're just so thankful for the opportunity uh, that we have to, to hear your word. Uh, God, uh, that we are a church that is focused on, on hearing your word. That God, this isn't just uh, an opinion uh, of a pastor, but God, we're going to hear your word being taught. And God, I pray that you would give us understanding. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds, that we would understand what it is that you want to teach us today. And God, more importantly than what you want to teach us, God, I pray that you would help us to know how we are to respond. Because your word is not just meant to be heard, it is to be responded to. So God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, that we would understand what it means for us to respond to you today. God, I pray that you would put the distractions out of our mind, that we can lean in, and that you would speak to each and every one of us directly. Jesus, we love you, and we praise you in your name. Amen. So our text started out in verse 2, and it said... After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John, they were kind of the inner circle of, of, of disciples, kind of the, the, the leaders of the disciples, so to speak. And Mark, who's the author of the Gospel of Mark, really original name for his book, but but Mark, he attaches this phrase after six days because he wants to relate what's about to happen with what's happened just before, with what happened six days ago from basically what we've been studying the last couple of weeks. He wants to attach this story of the transfiguration to what happened right before this. And so we've got to remember what we've been studying the past couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember, Jesus, Jesus was hanging out with the disciples and he asked them, they said, who do the people say that I am? And if you remember, the disciples said, well, some people say you're like a prophet, like you're Elijah or, or, or Moses or, or someone like that. And Jesus got very pointed and says, and who do you say that I am? And remember, that was where Peter had that great confession. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. The one that we've been waiting for ever since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And so he confesses Jesus. And then, and then Jesus begins to teach them. He begins to help them understand what it means that he is the Christ. What it means to be the Savior. He says that he's going to have to suffer many things. And Jesus is going to have to be rejected. And Jesus is going to have to be killed. And after three days, Jesus is going to rise again. And if you remember, we, we looked at this last week, how Peter, Peter didn't like this idea of a suffering Savior. And so, and so he objected and, and, and got a very stinging rebuke from Jesus. <laughs> and so, and so um, then in response to, to Peter not getting it, Jesus calls the crowd around him. He calls them together and he begins to teach them about what it means to really follow Jesus. That if we're going to be followers of Jesus, he says, this is what it's going to look like. You have to deny yourselves. You have to take up your cross and follow me. He says these hard things, and he says, You have to embrace this idea of a suffering servant. See, they were embracing the idea that Jesus wasn't a, a superhero savior who is going to overpower the world, but rather they were to embrace a suffering savior. And those who were going to follow Jesus had to be willing to take up their own cross and endure suffering on their own lives if they're truly going to follow Jesus. So this was a radical and revolutionary revelation. This was, well, this was completely out of sync then what the, the disciples had thought of when they thought of the Savior. They thought the Savior would come and he would bring political power and he would overrule the evil and overrule the Roman, the Roman uh, uh, Empire. And they thought this is what it's going to be. And this was completely different than what is happening. So this would have been a very confusing time for these disciples, it would have been even a little bit depressing because the Messiah that they anticipated was not the one that actually came. And so now it's been six days later and you can, you can kind of get the idea that over this period of six days, things haven't gotten better for the disciples. They're not understanding. They're still struggling with this idea of Jesus being a suffering servant. We're not told how the disciples had responded to Jesus' teaching about suffering and and rejection and crucifixion and death and denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and losing our lives in order to live. We're not told how they responded to that. But in the coming chapters and the the next couple weeks, we're going to see how the disciples are argue. amongst themselves about which of the disciples is the greatest. And then two of the disciples, uh, James and John, they begin to 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 campaign for, for the two top cabinet positions in Jesus' administration. So the idea is his disciples are still not getting who this Savior is. They're not getting this idea on Jesus coming to give his life in order to win. So it would seem as even though they have heard Jesus, they haven't really understood. They haven't embraced. They haven't uh, come to understand why Jesus came and what it meant for us to be disciples of Jesus. So, it's in that context. It's in that reality. It's in that story of the disciples not getting it that we read in verse 2 where it says, and he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. This, this idea of this transfiguration I mean, this is a this is a word that I don't really I don't really have a context for. What does this transfiguration mean? This word transfigured comes from the Greek word, uh, 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 memorph, memorpho, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis. And so this transfiguration of Jesus is Jesus experiencing some sort of metamorphosis, some physical transformation right in front of the, the watching eyes of Peter and James and John, the inner circle of disciples. The question is, well, what did he metamorphosize into? What did he turn into? what, did, what, well, what happened here? The description Mark gives is, is rather limited, but he says in, in it says in verse 3 that not, it wasn't just his physical appearance that changed. It says in verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on the earth could bleach them. You kind of get the idea that Mark is trying to come up for some sort of description of what happened. He's, he's struggling for words to describe what they saw. So he says that Jesus' clothes were dazzling white, like, like something no mom could ever bleach to get clean enough. Mark's trying to say that what they saw was something that the disciples had never, ever seen before. They had never, ever glimpsed at something that could be as close to describing what they saw in Jesus. The gospel writer Matthew, also in his gospel, and his account of Jesus' life, he includes this same transfiguration story. And he has another description for us to understand in Matthew 17. Matthew wrote and said, after, G- after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. See, Matthew says that Jesus, his face shone bright like the sun. It didn't just reflect light, but it actually produced light itself. So, I'll be honest. As I begin to read God's word, and especially when I was younger my faith, I'm reading this story, and I'm realizing this story is significant. There's, there's, there's depth to it. It's an important story. But I just don't get what it's about. I mean, what is this What is this metamorphosis thing? What does this transfiguration really mean? I mean, what's happening? Jesus metamorphosized into something, but what does it mean? What did he turn into? So, to understand what this tra- transfiguration uh, means, it's important for us to familiarize ourselves with a story out of the Old Testament. And, and there's a story in Exodus chapter 33 where, where Moses, we know Moses, he was a f- guy who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. You've seen the movie about him. There's also some books in the Old Testament that were written by him, too. And so he, he, there's a story in Exodus 30 where Moses is pleading before God on behalf of the Israelite people and the behalf of himself. And, 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 and he makes this incredibly bold request. He says in Exodus 33, verse 18 Moses said, Please show me your glory. He asks to see God's face. God told Moses, He said, Moses, you can't see my face because the problem is I'm holy. I'm a righteous. And you, Moses, you're sinful. You are a sinner. And so, and so if he saw, if Moses saw God's face, the fullness of God's glory, that, that would mean he saw his deity. Then Moses would die because nobody could see God's face and, and, and live. But because Moses had this deep longing to see God, to have that face-to-face intimacy with him, God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a little cleft of the, uh, of the rock. I'm going I'm to put you in a little hollow opening in the rock. And I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by you. And then I'm going to move my hand, and, and you won't be able to see my face, but you'll be able to see my backside. You'll be able to see my back. Exodus 34 tells what happened after this happened. It says what happened next. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai after seeing the back of God's presence, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. You see, when God had passed by Moses, some of the glory of God, some of his glory uh, uh, of his revelation of his deity, it, it, got, it got onto Moses' face. So that when Moses came down off the mountain, his face was shining bright and he scared people. His face was reflecting the light of God, was reflecting God himself. It was so bright that the people said, "Hey, hey, you need to put something over your face because this is just freaking us all out. Moses, all he simply did is he reflected the glory of God. Just like the moon reflects the light from the sun. The moon doesn't produce any light. It just reflects the glory of the sun. And this is what Moses is doing. He reflected the glory of God. But here in the transfiguration, Jesus' face isn't just reflecting God's light. And Matthew, when he wrote that, that Jesus' face shone, it actually refers to producing light, like the sun produces light. So on that Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus isn't just reflecting God's light. He was producing God's light. He was producing the glory of God. The glory of God was emanating from Jesus himself. This is why the transfiguration is so important because on this mount on this mountain the disciples got to see what jesus what, what moses didn't get to see through the person of jesus they got to see the face of god and they didn't die see jesus in his earthly life he, he his his deity his, his 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 godness was 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 veiled but at the transfiguration here god the father confirms to Peter and James and John the true identity of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just some good teacher. He wasn't some great man. He was confirming that God, that Jesus was God himself. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. For a moment, that veil was gone, and they could see Jesus for who he truly was. There's a great old dead theologian by the name of John Calvin. And he articulates this idea of the transfiguration. So, well, this is what Calvin says. He says, Christ clothed himself with heavenly glory for a short time. His transfiguration did not altogether enable enable his disciples to see Christ as he is now in heaven, but gave them a taste of the boundless glory as they were able to comprehend. This was not a complete exhibition of the heavenly glory of Christ, but under symbols which were adapted to the capacity of the flesh, he enabled them to taste in part what could not be fully comprehended. For a moment, God allowed them to see what they could understand and see that Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was God himself. And the disciples, they're catching just a glimpse of this, just a glimpse of the glory of Christ. So not only does the transfiguration, not only does Jesus reveal his true identity, but it says that he calls in two heavyweights from Israel, Israel's past. It says in verse, verse 3, it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could, uh, could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. See, Moses and Elijah, they were, they were heavyweights from Israel's past. And both Moses and Elijah, at some point in their lifetimes, had had visions of the glory of God while they were on the mountains. And so now God brings Moses, who was the chief lawgiver, representing the law of God, representing the first half of the Old Testament. And and then he brings Elijah, the prophet of God, probably the greatest prophet that ever lived, representing the prophets, the second half of the Old Testament. And he brings them together together. And these two heavyweights are being presented at the transfigura- transfiguration of Jesus as if they're pointing to say, Jesus, he is, the, he is the, the, the fullness of what we've been talking about. The Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. The, 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 the law of God, uh, the, the Mosaic law, it all points to Jesus. The prophets, everything they prophesied, it all points to Jesus. All roads lead to Jesus. And so Moses and Elijah are there as if to say, hey, this is the one that we've been talking about. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Verse five says, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not not know what to say, for they were terrified. (laughs) Peter, we all love Peter. Because we all have a little bit of Peter in ourselves at at times. Peter, he still just doesn't understand. Remember remember last time, in the last text that we were in, in in Mark chapter 8? Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus because Jesus is talking about death and crucifixion and rejection. And and, and Peter says, no, hey, that's not the kind of Savior that we want to follow. We want a Savior who's going to come in and rule with power and authority. And now on this mountain, the oh so lovable Peter, who doesn't quite know what to say, he blurts out something like this. He says, Yeah, yeah, this transfiguration thing, this Jesus revealing himself to us, I like this. This is good. This is good. Let's do this. Let's build three tents. Let's build some tents. Let's build a tent for you, Jesus. A tent for Moses. A tent for Elijah. Let's stay here for a while. This is good. I mean, this is, this is why I follow Jesus. Because it's days like this when things are awesome. Let's, let's build these tents. Let's stay here for a while. This is good for us. And yes, it was good for them. But Peter, behind his words, he's showing us again that he still just doesn't get Why Jesus came and what Jesus is about. Because not only by saying, let's build these three tents. Not only is he trying to put Jesus on the same playing level as Moses and Elijah, which wasn't the case. But Peter is also trying to take the easy route. He's trying to say, no, Jesus, Jesus, let's not worry about Jerusalem. Let's not worry about that rejection stuff that you were talking about. Let's not worry about that, that crucifixion and the suffering and the death. We don't want to worry about that. Let's just stay right here. Let's bring your kingdom here right now. Let's not have to go and go through the rest of what you talked about before. Peter's words show that he still doesn't get why Jesus came and what Jesus said. This is what I'm about. He's saying it would be better for Jesus to stay on this mountain and be this glorious state now and forever rather than going to Jerusalem, rather than going and fulfilling what he did on the cross. This is the same idea that happened last week in Caesarea Philippi, that he wants to forget Jesus. Let's forget this idea of being a suffering servant. Let's come now. Let's do it now. But here's the thing. As soon as Peter says this as soon as Peter says hey let's let's stay here look what happened next verse seven says "And a cloud overshadowed them cloud represents the presence of God and it says "And a voice came out of the cloud and said this is my beloved son listen to him this command, listen to him, isn't just like you're listening to Maroon 5 or, or Toby Mac. It all means to listen and to respond, to obey what you hear. Let me tell you a little story. The other The other night, Samantha and I, we were watching The Voice. Don't judge me, we watched The Voice. And uh, we're watching The Voice, and it was the elimination show. And, and on the elimination show, they brought a couple of the... the, the, the people that were on some of the previous seasons to come back and to sing. And there's one girl who was singing. I think she was from season one. I don't know where she's from. And, and she's singing, and they have this amazing light show going on. And I don't know if any of you watched this, but they have this amazing light show, and there's lights going up and down, and it looks like there's a box around here. Like, there's a box of lights. Did anybody see this, or am I the only one that saw this? Mm-hmm. Oh, somebody else. Oh, yeah. Uh, We can watch it together this week. And so, and so there's this amazing light show going on. And I'm like, and I'm mesmerized. I'm like, whoa, how do they do that? I mean, could we do that here at the seasons? How do you do all those kind of crazy light shows? And it looks like there's a box. and, And all of a sudden, the lights go down and the lights are gone. And all you see is this girl up there singing. You see, the light show, that wasn't the purpose of that performance. The performance, the purpose of it, was what she was going to sing, was what she was going to do. And I think this kind of becomes the picture of the transfiguration. It wasn't about the light show. There was a purpose behind it. God the Father is saying this. He's going to tell us the whole meaning behind the transfiguration. He's saying the purpose isn't just the light show. Jesus was just unveiled as God the Son and the purpose for that, the purpose of the transfiguration was so that the, G, so that the disciples would, would, would know who Jesus truly was. They would know that he is God, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. And not only that they would know that, but knowing that, that they would listen to him. That they would listen to him. Remember what these disciples have been struggling with? They didn't understand, or at least they didn't want to come to an understanding of why Jesus had come and and what he expected of us if we're going to follow him. But here, here, Jesus has been revealed to them, not as a good man, not as a great teacher, but as God himself. And then the command comes from God. Listen to him. See, the law and the prophets... The Old Testament, they were partial expressions. But here in Jesus, this is God's final statement. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what we have in the Old Testament. He says, but in those last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus, he's the ultimate expression of truth. And Peter and James and John, they are to listen to what Jesus said. Listen and understand what Jesus meant when he talked about the necessity of the crucifixion and suffering and his death and his resurrection. They need to understand that, that, that Jesus is going to de- defeat tyranny and he was going to defeat evil. That he was going to establish a new kingdom where, where God's people would sit on the throne with him and reign forever. But they needed to listen and understand that he wasn't talking about doing it through a a military campaign or some sort of political takeover. Rather, they needed to listen to him and understand that he was going to establish his new kingdom through his suffering and through his death. They needed to understand that Jesus wasn't clinging to power and prestige and pride, but he came humbly Choosing humility and servanthood. And that was how the kingdom of God was going to be established. And just like those disciples, we need to listen to him. We need to hear his word and not just listen to it, but we need to respond to it. We need to be like those disciples and listen and obey when Jesus says this. When he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We need to listen and respond. We need to listen and respond when Jesus says so clearly. He's saying if your life is falling apart, if your life is far from perfect, if you're struggling, you feel like, man, my life has, is, is horrible. We need to listen. When Jesus says, you're the one I came for, he said in Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When our anxiety kicks in and we have this fear that overcomes us, we need to listen when Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. When we get confused about the meaning of life and we start looking for happiness and whatever this world has to offer, we need to listen to Jesus when he says to us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We need to listen We need to listen when Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the beloved son. Listen to him. Let me just offer this little bit of a warning to us. Because we can sit pretty proudly in our pew and say, you know, I've listened to Jesus. I've subscribed to be a follower. I'm at church today. I I, I listen to Jesus. Let us not think that we have truly listened to Jesus just because we acknowledge, acknowledge the general idea of his authority. Because Peter and the other disciples, remember, they've already identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. They've already signed on as followers of Jesus, but still, clearly, they still don't get it they still don't understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, I'm coming as a suffering servant. The story continues, and it says, And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. See, it's clear that these disciples haven't quite grasped what Jesus was, was talking about or what they had witnessed. I mean, Jesus knew from Peter's desire to build three tabernacles that they just didn't quite get it. And so this was, since this was the case, he instructs them and says, be quiet about what just happened until the resurrection. Jesus knew that one day everything will all make sense and it will come after the resurrection. And they eventually do get to the resurrection and these disciples eventually get it. Both Peter and and, and and John, they write about this story, about seeing the glory of God in their books that they wrote in the New Testament. But here in Mark 9, the disciples, they're obviously still a little bit stunned. And they begin to wonder, you know, what is this resurrection? What is, what, what is he talking about? Verse 10 says that they kept this them to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead really meant. I mean, while, while, while they obey Jesus' command to not to tell others, they're still a little bit confused. They're like, we don't understand what you're—we just don't get this. And so they sought out their, 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 their master. They sought out Jesus, and they asked him the following question in verse 11. They said—they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? There was a teaching from uh, the Old Testament that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And having just seen Elijah on the mountain, the disciples are trying to to, to understand this, by what they had been taught by the old rabbis and teachers. And they say, how could Jesus be the promised one if Elijah had not come? And if Elijah is the Messiah, then what happened to, or if Jesus is the Messiah, then what happened to Elijah? And so in order to calm their anxiety, Jesus responds in verses 12 and 13. He said to them this, He said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written, the son of man, that he should uh, suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. See, what the disciples had heard concerning Elijah was correct. Yes, Elijah would come before the Messiah. In fact, Jesus says, Elijah has already come. Back in Matthew's account uh, of the transfiguration, he says, Elijah has already come. And and they knew, the disciples knew, they were talking about John the Baptist. Elijah has come as John the Baptist. He's come to preach the gospel, to restore all things. And here, Jesus says that Elijah has come. Elijah was rejected. Uh, John the Baptist, he was Elijah. He's been rejected. He's been put to death. And the same thing that happened to John is going to happen to Jesus. Once again, Jesus is trying to say and point them back to the cross, point them back to his crucifixion, point them back to the victory that is found in the cross. I mean, Jesus is trying to make the point. You want to know why I came? It's for the cross. And so I can be a suffering savior. So how do we wrap this up? What does this mean to you and I? For the disciples, this transfiguration was a mountaintop experience. It was one of those experiences that was amazing. I mean, they would have been so on fire. They would have done whatever Jesus asked of them. They were would have been so excited. Sometimes Mother's Day can be that kind of a day for moms, you know, where moms finally get the pleases and thank yous for all the great things that moms do. And, and for me, I'm going to call my mom. I haven't talked to her in a little while she's gonna be all excited because i give her a phone call and that's great and mother's day is kind of like that mountaintop experiences but mothers does mother's day last all year long no right right because then kids go back to whatever they were doing and and mom just keeps doing what she's doing because that's what mom is mountaintop experiences are not the, the the normal state of life life isn't all about mountaintop experiences There are valleys, and there's trials, and there's struggles, and there's doubts, and there's difficulties. And as much as we like that idea of being on top of that mountain, as much as we want to be like Peter and say, let's just stay here, the reality is we can't. Reality is life is not full of mountaintop experiences. We have those, but we also have trials and valleys and struggles and difficulties. And God uses those mountaintop experiences God uses them to remind us of who he truly is. And the response that he expects from us is that we would listen and we would respond and we would obey. See, you might be in one of those valley experiences right now. You might be in one of those times of life where it's difficult, where where, where there's trials going on and you're just trying to make it through. You're far from the mountaintop experience, but just like God the Father said, I plead with you today, would you listen to him? Would you listen to him? He says, come to me, all who labor labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you listen to him? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Will we listen to him? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Will we listen to him? He says, I have said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Will we listen to him? He says, peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I've come to give you peace. Will we listen to his word? He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Will we listen to his word? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Will we listen to him? He says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and fall over me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Will you listen to him? Because I think that's God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to open up your word. And God, even looking at a story like the transfiguration. God, that you revealed your son to us, that he is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. God, I pray that you help us to see him. God, I pray that we would think back to our own lives the times that God has made that clear to us, the times that we have felt God be so clear to us and that we can see and we knew who God was. For someone here today, today's that day when they're realizing Jesus is the son of God. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. God, I pray that we would think back to those mountaintop experiences when we realized and we knew who Jesus was. That we would recognize who he is. And in response to that, that we would obey his word. That we would listen to his word. Because ultimately, God, that's what you want from us. You want us to see who he is so that we would listen to him. God, I pray for those in here today, I pray that they would listen to your word today as you say so many things of love and comfort and hope and peace and, and joy and, and satisfaction and and and, and 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 all these things. God, I pray that we would listen to that word and that it would touch us where we need it. And that, God, we would listen not just to hear, but we would respond to that. That when you say things to us like like, like I've never left, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, I pray that we would take heart that today, even though the the life is hard, even though things are difficult, even though we may feel alone, we're not alone. God, I pray that we would take heart when you say things like the old has passed away, the new has come. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. God, I pray that you help us not just to, to hear that, but to embrace that. That God, you can take the most broken of us and you can make us new. And that if we are in Christ, we are already made new. Help us live in that identity and in that reality. God, I know some of us, life is in turmoil, anxiety, fear. God, I pray that we would listen to your word when you say, peace, I live with you, I leave with you. I give you my peace. That, God, we would not just hear this, but, God, we would embrace it. That we would experience it today. God, I pray for every one of us in here today that we would listen to your word, that we would embrace it, that we would live it, that we would see you for who you truly are, and in response, we would follow you. We would deny ourselves, we would take up our cross and follow you. God, I pray during this time of of response now, as we have the t- opportunity to respond to God's word. God, I pray for those in here today who need to take a few minutes and just spend some time before you just just, just praying and saying, God, God, here's where I'm at. God, here's what I'm dealing with. God, would you meet me here now? God, I pray for those in here today who are struggling through life, that God, they would cry out to you and say, God, would You would you meet me? God, I need your presence around me right now. God, for those in here today who are struggling through sin, God, I pray that you would continue to to, to put your finger on them. God, not to be angry with them, but to draw them to repentance. That they would cry out and say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, you are real. And I surrender myself to you. I deny myself. I take up my cross and I choose you. God, I pray for those who who won't spend time in prayer. God, I pray that as the worship team sings these next couple of songs, that we would be able to sing these songs from the bottom of our heart. That we would cry out to you and praise you for who you are and worship you the way that you deserve. God, we love you and praise you. I thank you for your presence being with us today. I thank you for speaking to us. Jesus, we love you. We ask this in your name.